is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm Dakota Arsenault. And I'm Rachel Ho. This week, for the second year in a row, we are covering Cinefest Sudbury. The festival just celebrated its 32nd year and went from last year's all-digital edition to this year's hybrid model, allowing locals to check out films in Sudbury, while also letting viewers not only in Ontario, but across Canada to check out one of the best underrated film festivals. Just like me, this is your second year covering the fest. What did you think of it this year, Rachel? Um, it was okay. I, I'm trying not to be too hard on film festivals this year because I feel like there's a bit of a glut in the quality just from, you know, a bunch of productions were stalled over last year for obvious reasons. Um, but overall, I think it was good. The selection of movies, it was pretty heavily Canadian. I know that that's typically what Cinefest does is lean into the Canadian films. Um, but yeah, I, I thought some of them were good that we saw. I mean, we'll get into it. We saw a couple that we weren't so keen on. Um, but as usual, I mean, from last year, we were very like raving about Cinefest's uh, platform and same thing this year. It's like it was a very seamless um, purchasing and kind of, you know, getting the films to work and all that stuff. I didn't I didn't have any problems with that. Yeah, I I agree, I agree on that front. Like their website is so well designed. Yeah. When, when you log in, you see what are the new movies that are available starting that specific day, and they'll list you know about five to seven movies, including the shorts packages, and then it'll list all the other movies that are still available for that day, and then what movies are to come. So once movies are no longer available, they take them off the front page, so you can't see them. It's not like oh man, what about mm-hmm. this movie? Oh, it's not playing. Oh, whoops, I missed it, sort of thing. So it's nice that they like they kind of just keep it as clean as possible, simple as possible, that layout. I will say I'm, I was a bit disappointed being in BC now, <laughs> not everything was available out here, which is understandable. I understand, you know, geo blocking region blocking is a thing and, and it's very unfortunate, but sometimes they would have it on like the main title card. When you're on the main page, it says, um, for Ontario only or whatever it said exactly. And then some of them you'd go in and, read the description it's not there and then you click to go buy it to press to watch it and then suddenly a pop up and you're like sorry this movie is only available in ontario and it's like why didn't you tell me earlier so i think they, they could have done a little little bit better of of properly announcing which movies were only available in ontario but otherwise as far as the platform excellent as far as the selection i agree like it seemed to have you know we've covered a few festivals this year it seemed to have some of the same movies, which is fine. Some of them I miss, and it's nice to be able to finally check them out. But they didn't have as many of the big titles as they did last year, if that makes sense. 100%. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I, I think um, you mentioned like there's a lot of repeat films. I think that's actually a, almost a selling point for Cinefest, which kind of sucks But it, to say it that way. But I know that you know TIFF was kind of the cluster bleep that it usually is in terms of scheduling things like that and and communication to uh audience and and press as well so there's going to be a a fair amount of movies that i'm sure people missed but cinefest was holding um and for cheaper as well like it was less expensive so and with the hybrid model it works out pretty well i think for canadians anyway and people specifically in ontario I actually never understood that. Like, I know I, I make fun of you for having left Ontario, but I actually do find it kind of weird that within our country, there's geo-blocking. You know, I don't think the states have that problem. I could be speaking out of turn here, but I just find it kind of odd that there's going to be some movies that's like only Ontario can watch it. Um, there was another film festival out east. I think it's the St. John's one. Um, and it was blocked to the Maritimes as well, which I found just odd. Mm-hmm. Was that Finn Atlantic? I think so. I actually, I wish I remembered the name of the film festival. The reason I even knew about it actually was because of a movie that I watched at Cinefest last year. And I was tracking to see where else it was playing because I actually wanted to watch it again. Uh, it was called A Happy Place, uh, if anybody's interested. I think you can get it on VOD now. Um, it's quite a heavy movie, but I really, really enjoyed it. And I was trying to see like, oh, maybe I can watch it somewhere else and kind of support it. And it was at... I really can't remember the film festival now. I wish I knew, but it was at like a one over on the East coast and mm. I couldn't watch it cause it was geo blocked to the maritime provinces. Well, that's unfortunate. Yeah. I, I just don't get it. Like it's weird. 
regardless, I would say overall SanFest is definitely a festival that people should check out. The prices mm-hmm. are, are so much more reasonable than you would yeah. at TIFF, where you're paying sometimes upwards of $40 for a digital experience, whereas <laughs> I believe most of the, the ticket prices for SanFest were like 15 bucks a movie, which is like in line with what you would go to see a regular film. So I, I appreciate that, and, and yeah, it doesn't. It didn't have all the big titles. They did have quite a few films that were screened um, in person only, and I have them here. That includes stuff like uh, All My Puny Sorrows, which also was a bit online, but also there was The Card Counter, The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, uh, Official Competition, and a few others that only received in-person screenings. I believe one of those films, I think it was The Electrical Life of Louis Wayne, was originally slated to be digital as well, but they got a little spooked and pulled it from the platform during TIFF um, due to all the leaks that were happening. Uh, so yeah, that was that was a little bit unfortunate, but still there were some some solid films that were to be seen. We both watched a few of the same movies, and that will sort of be central to our discussion. The first one I want to talk about is Wildhood, which was directed by Bretton Hannum, about a young two-spirit Mi'kmaq teen who runs away from his abusive home with his half-brother, and he tries to find his mother, who he learns is still alive. The film actually won an award for Indigenized Outstanding Talent. Did this coming-of-age story work for you? I really enjoyed it. Um, I think there's something interesting about a movie where you kind of, you know where it's going to go. Like I think that even just after hearing your description, I think anybody that's seen a handful of coming-of-age movies, um, mm-hmm. you kind of guess where where the end point is going to be but i think for a movie to be predictable and yet still very compelling um that's an incredible achievement to have so i really enjoyed it i thought the performances were great um for me the biggest standout in that movie was the music uh and not that's sorry that's not to take away from the movie itself it's just the music really really stood out to me like the score throughout the whole film i found it to be really musical and really uh haunting when it needed to be and beautiful when it needed to be it kind of it does everything that a score is supposed to be which is you know enhance the scenes that you watch and the so the composer is neil haverty um and you can find the whole soundtrack online Uh, you can purchase it as well if you want to support him um but there was one scene in particular you know in the love scene that they had uh it was like the music for that for me kind of is what captivated that entire scene of just like it's his first time, you know, having sex with a man and um, the music was really romantic, but not overly sappy. Uh, But yeah, the music in general is amazing. The film was great, all the performances. And I love how they incorporated the Mi'kmaq heritage and the culture of it um, pretty seamlessly within the film. So it felt really, really organic and not in your face. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. This is now the third Canadian film in three different Canadian film festivals that I've seen that like is a real standout and a highlight of what Canadian cinema can be. And this is one yeah. that worked really well. Like you said, as far as if you've seen, you know, a handful of coming of age stories, unless they're like the subversive types where they're explicitly playing against tropes, you sort of know what the beats are going to be and how these character arcs are going to go. And and it definitely follows that path, which is, you know, you can say the same about any genre and the the tropes that they sort of fall through. But I think this one works well because it hits unique beats that we don't normally see in cinema, specifically from a queer lens where we don't really get a lot. We do get some queer coming of age stories, but not a ton. And then you add in the fact that it also has an indigenous angle as well, where this is about a young man who has had his identity erased through his father, who doesn't want him to acknowledge his Mi'kmaq heritage. And he goes so far as like the first time we see him in the film, he's dyeing his hair blonde so he can look more like a white man. And and that sort of experience that he goes through, I think that works really well. And so it's almost as the audience we are he is our surrogate as an audience member of sort of learning and understanding a bit more about the Mi'kmaq culture because sort of every character he meets throughout the film helps him understand his background a bit more of who he is and why he he is the person that he needs to be sort of thing by the time he gets to the end of the film and obviously i don't really want to spoil it but like we said if you understand the beats and and tropes of coming of age stories you can probably guess where it goes but that said overall you know it was it was a fantastic performances all around the, the lead character philip lieutenant Lu, lewinsky 
who plays Link, the the main character. I think he does a really great job. And then opposite him was Joshua Ojik, who uh, who is another young man who is also a Micmac, who sort of takes him on this journey, and they begin this uh, relationship together. It was really beautiful. And for me, we were sort of talking about this behind the scenes, where you know, if anyone knows sort of anything about indigenous cultures, we, we know how important uh, water is to them. Mm-hmm. You know, they consider themselves protectors of the waters and land and, and, and things like that. And so much so that, you know, one of the characters, he has a patch on his denim vest that says water is sacred. But there are several scenes in this film that every time water is involved, I think are sort of like the key point where if you were to really analyze what's going on in the film and the beats that are happening and, and how the story is progressing, water is involved in different ways. You know, there's this opening scene not long after uh, these two young boys meet that they go bathing in the water. And that's sort of a real eye-opening refresher for them. And then later on, when they first, you know, uh, make love together and have sex, it's in the water as well. And then later, he finally, when he gets to a a local reserve, he takes the shower. And that's the first time he has any memories of his mother when he was a young boy. And then finally, at the very end, it takes place on a beach as well, which you, you had pointed out to me as well. And that kind of clued in as well. Where really, it just sort of ties everything together of why water is such an important thematic element of this film. And I think it shows, um, you know, the director you, you mentioned, uh, Breton Hannum, you know, he's a Mi'kmaq as well. And I think that that like this movie is a really good example of why it's important to have indigenous people telling their own stories and that not just indigenous people, but you could say the same for any group out there. Um, it's important to have them be the directors and have them be the writers because they can be actually authentic and not just kind of assume what a culture would do or bring in quote unquote consultants, um, you know, just give it to them and, and let them tell the story because they're going to be able to tell the story in a way that is accurate. Um, but also not like it feels organic. Like I said that already, but, and I think that that's kind of what the key of this movie is, is that they do have those, you know, like you rightly pointed out the symbolism with the water and the relation to it. Um, and, but they do it so kind of effortlessly, right? Like it's just, it's just there. Um, and that to me is why it's, it's just another example of why it's so important that we have different types of people telling different stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're, you're completely right. And I think it's sort of a very interesting thing where there were two scenes in particular that felt very much like they were inspired by Alfonso Cuaron in two <laughs> different films. And and I'd even put together, they're both Cuaron films until when I was writing my review because early on, there is this sort of like little car chase sequence when uh, when Link is running away and he first meet, meets up with Pazme, the, the indigenous teen, and they're driving along this road and suddenly Link's father's behind them. And this camera, you know, goes from facing the, the rear view window of seeing the car approaching and then it starts to do a slow 360 pan going forward where Link takes a soda bottle filled with uh, his younger brother's urine and the camera is still rotating and shows him lean out the window and throws the, the, the pop can or the, the, the container of it. And it continues to rotate and goes back to the rear view camera where it shows the, this bottle hitting the, the window of his father's car and it sort of spins out. And it felt very much like the car chase sequence in children of men, obviously in a much more smaller scale, but it felt so much like that. And then the second one, was when Link and Pazme finally uh, get together. It's they're skinny dipping in the water, and then they go under a waterfall, and then they have sex there. But it, just overall, the the vibe of it very much felt like the final sequence in Itumama Tambien, where sort of a similar event sort of happens, where the the two male characters finally end up hooking up as well there too. So it was very interesting that that ended up happening that way. And I'm writing, I'm like, oh, yeah, Itumama Tambien, and then Children of Man. I'm like, oh wait, same director. So that was just sort of funny where it kind of light bulb moment and like, oh, I bet you uh, Bretton Hannon really likes Alfonso Cuaron. <laughs> did you uh, did you pick up on those when you were watching it too or anything like that? Um, the car scene, yes, I did. Because I actually, I really love Children of Men. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, and, and I remember watching thinking like, this kind of looks kind of familiar. Not, you know, it's like an inspired by, I wouldn't call it like a lift or anything like that. Um, but hey, if you're going to be inspired by a director, I think Koran is a pretty good one um, to to model yourself after. 
So what made you decide to become a bus driver? This and nude modeling are the two highest paying jobs on campus. Dude, I think I'd pick the nude modeling. <laughs> You're nearing a milestone with the campus bus service. Keep up the good work. We've got to stay behind the line, man. All right, so I think we should move on to the next film, which uh, we both saw one called Drunk Bus, which was directed by John Carlucci about a young man who drives a night bus around a college campus as he refuses to get over his ex-girlfriend who left him and moved to New York City. This is a movie that really didn't work for me, but one that we were moderately positive on. So mm-hmm. let's hash it out and uh, tell me why this is a good movie for you. Okay, let's not go crazy. I wouldn't say it's a good movie for me. <laughs> I, like, let's let's not go nuts here. I will say caveat was I watched this one and then I watched the next movie that um, the next day, I think I watched the next movie that we're going to talk about. And that one was really, really bad. So in comparison, drunk bus didn't seem as bad all of a sudden. Um, The reason I give it a bit of a pass, I suppose, is I don't think you and I are particularly the demographic for this movie anymore. Um, And I mean, I know you can make an argument that a good movie, it doesn't matter who the demographic is like a good movie is a good movie, but I also for me anyways, I take into consideration the fact that, you know, there's going to be, there's, there's an audience for pretty much every kind of movie. And, you know, a film like Drunk Bus that has a lot of, it's like really juvenile humor and really like kind of toilet humor and all that kind of stuff. It's not for everyone. Um, I think you and I maybe have become a bit too like old and you know, uptight (laughs) for these things, maybe. Uh, But I just feel like it's one of those that I can definitely see why there's an audience out there for it. Um, I can't say like, it's a movie that I'll ever, 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 ever want to watch again, or even a movie that, you know, if I hear that that director is, um, he's made a new one, like, I'm not going to be like, oh, shit, like, I gotta go watch that. Um, It's just, I can, I can see where there might be an audience for it. And that you and I probably aren't that audience. Uh, I think in general, though, the film is relatively formulaic. Like it's, we were talking about coming of age movies before with Wildhood. I would say this is a very similar type of coming of age movie, not similar to Wildhood, but just similar in the sense of it has uh, the same kind of stock characters. It has the same moments of realization, you know, those kinds of things. And you know, we grew up in kind of the era where Superbad was the big one. Um, I really enjoyed Superbad. And I think that that is probably one I still would like, but there's probably a nostalgic effort to it. And not at all am I saying Drunk Bus is anywhere near as good as Superbad, because I don't think it is. Um, but it does follow that that formula. It does have a bit of charm and moments of like, oh, that that's kind of funny. Like, you know, but when you have to say things like that's kind of funny rather than actually laughing it's probably not that funny in general. Uh, for me, the standout was a, a character called Fuck You, Bob. Um, it was played by, or he was played by Martin Pfefferkorn. And that, for me, that character was really good because it provided a good amount of humor just almost from the name itself. Um, but it was actually the heart of the movie, which I I like that. Like I like that it kind of came from maybe a bit of an unexpected place uh, without spoiling who the character is or what he does. Um, but yeah, so I wouldn't say I, I like particularly love the movie or would recommend it to everybody, but I can definitely see just that there, there will be people who enjoy the movie and I can understand why they enjoy it. That's probably the best way I can hmm. say it. I, yeah. I, I feel like I need to push back on that a little bit because I, I really don't. <laughs> I don't I don't feel that way at all. Like I talk about this in my review a little bit, doing a bit of research into this movie. This this is a 2021 movie, but it was supposed to come out last year, but due to the pandemic it got pushed back. But in reality, it was started being in development in 2015 and it's about a movie from 2009. So I already kind of feel like it's it's past yeah. its expiration point and they I feel like they try so hard to get what life was like in 2009 as far as the the lexicon and the look and the feel and the style of everything that they neglected to have any real grounding or heart to this film where you would attach yourself to any of their characters or care about their journeys or their their problems or you know get excited about when they make uh, advancements or achieve or achieve their goals or whatever it is and 
the, the concept of like, you know, maybe we're not the right audience, which, you know, I, I totally get where, where that's often the thing, but you know, I look at something like, you know, you mentioned super bad or something like, uh, the breakfast club or book smart or whatever it is mm-hmm. where it's about, uh, you know, teenagers coming of age, whether it's high school or college or whatever, have you be, those movies still work and it, you don't necessarily have to be, you know, a 17 year old to understand what it's like to be a 17 year old in this movie. The main character has already graduated from college yet. He's sort of still stuck in this, you know, arrested development state of being around college age people. But the problem is a lot of the other characters are also not college stage as well. So anyone that has any sort of an arc in this film already isn't in college. So it's sort of confusing about why the connection of, of being in a college town really matters all that much other than being around other immature people who, you know, aren't really adults yet. So that that's just sort of my, my issue with it. And, and a lot of the jokes just really don't fall for me. Like we've, we've gone, you know, past the point of, of using some of the words as a society that we've realized that are sort of hurtful to other people. And I think this movie tries way too hard to capture that moment and not realize why we've sort of moved forward as a society. I think, okay, I, I will agree with you. I don't understand in the sense of why the movie needed to be set in 2009, other than when they wrote it, it was 2009. Um, but I feel like it would have been easy enough to adapt it to modern day because I, I don't see any value in putting it in 09. Like there's, maybe, maybe this is me just trying to be like, we're not that old, but it's like, I don't feel like 09 is is a particularly like moment in time that we need to capture or anything like that. Oh, and the things like they, they they have cell phones, they have high speed internet, exactly they have, they, like impressive video games. Like there's nothing yeah. different from 2009 that's different from 2021, other than you know the way we look and dress. The only thing I would say too is like a, probably the biggest difference of 09 to today. Me and I mean you could argue with me that it's not actually that different, but back in 09, and this might be a nice segue into the next movie, but you know the world was under a recession, so as somebody who graduated around that time from university, that sucked. You know, there weren't as many job opportunities out there. It wasn't, um, it wasn't very optimistic as it was of like previous graduating years, you know? So that is the kind of thing to me that defines what that, you know, 07, 08, 09, even up until 2011, like that, that kind of defines that those few years for me. Um, and obviously nothing about that is in the movie. It's it's just about teenagers. So you could have said it today and I think it would have been more relevant today, but I'm going to push back on your pushback about not, about not being, um, you know, even if it's not for us, like it could still be a good movie. Cause you named some of the, to me, some of the best um, coming of age stories, like comedy wise uh, mm-hmm. that have been made. And there's been a lot of shit ones that have been made that we have forgotten, you know, like, um, I'm even trying to remember what some of them were, but like, even when we were growing up, there were some that were so bad. Like I can think of even say the scary movies, like the first scary movie was good. And I'm not saying that they were coming of age movies, but the comedy in them was so stupid. Like even to me at that, I was the right age for that, but they were dumb. And the fact is, is we've forgotten about them because they were bad movies. And we've forgotten about a lot of the crap that we saw when we were young. Cause they were bad. And the ones that we remember are the, the, the exceptionally good ones. I think Drunk Bus is definitely going to fall under one of the movies that it's going to be forgotten other than by the people who watched it and go, oh, like, I found that really funny. Now, how many people that's going to be? I feel like that's going to be quite small. I know, like, I mean, a movie that sits on the shelf for as long as this one has, uh, obviously, there's not a lot of confidence in it. Um, but, you know, like I said, I think that there will be some people who do find some humor out of it. I agree with you that there's language in it that we've moved past and perhaps maybe keeping it in 09. Maybe that's an excuse that you can say, oh, like in 09, we still said this kind of crap, you know, but that's just using a year that was, what are we, like 11 years ago? Oh, no, God, 12 years ago now. Um, My goodness. Um, But like that might be just kind of a lazy excuse to be like, Oh, well we, we talk like that back then. But I feel like I agree with it. Like we know better now. Um, and to hide behind a year in an era because of maybe you just want to use the language. That's kind of lame. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah, this this is a tough one because you know I I talked about I joked about this with you. It basically feels like a Michael Sarah movie from <laughs> two thousand nine. And so if you yeah. look at what Michael Sarah was doing at this time, it was it was super bad. It was Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. It was Juno and the sort of vibe it was going for. I really think it was trying to capture that similar thing so much so that the main character's name is Michael. And the female lead in it is named Kat, who, you know, Kat Dennings was the lead in Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. And she sort of plays a similar character that you can imagine Kat Dennings playing. So, like, this really feels like they were trying to capture that 2009. That's what I keep coming back to. They're trying to capture this 2009 era so hard that they completely miss on trying to make a good movie, in my opinion. You think it's kind of like how right now um, everybody is trying to copy, like, Ted Lasso. Right. Like everyone's trying to copy what the the optimism and the positivity of Ted Lasso. And I feel like we're almost guaranteed that the ones that try to copy it are going to fail. You know, so this is kind of that version of those Michael Sarah movies, which are relatively good. Like I would say, like Nick and Nora, I wasn't a huge fan of like Juno, I really liked and um, Superbad, obviously, I really like. So it's like them trying to jump on that trend to be like, oh, these are the movies that are popular right now. But you. I mean, anybody that just tries to jump on a trend and tries to copy the trend, very rarely do they actually achieve the same success um, because it's an imitation, you know, and it's, what is it? Often imitated, never duplicated. No. (laughs) Yeah. Is that the saying? I can't remember it now. Yeah. yeah. Um, But yeah, I kind of feel like it's like, I think the, like you doing the research into like what was going on with this movie in terms of development. It that to me sheds a lot of light on why the movie is the way that it is, you know, in terms of they were jumping on a trend back then. And there's a lot of laziness and not trying to update it to today, like when you were actually given a shot to make it. Um, and I'm speculating why the reasons for that are, but like, I, I just feel like that's very, it's very eye opening. Um, and probably, like I said, explains a lot of why Drunk Bus is the way that it is. Well, there you go. Hey there, if you're listening to this podcast ad, first off, you've got great taste in podcasts. Kudos to you. But secondly, you probably like movies, watching them, thinking about them, analyzing them, and reviewing them. And while the tales we see on the big screen do merit discussion, I think that's only half the story. Why do we see so many sequels instead of original films? What determines which films get sequels in the first place? Is it more the directors making a big hullabaloo about seeing their films in theaters than on streaming? And beyond the obvious social good, why is making more diverse films important? The answer to all these questions and more can be found on my podcast, The Box Office Watch, where we keep watch on how much money movies are making and why. My name's Paulo, and I'm your host. For better or worse, Hollywood is the business, and which films are profitable and which aren't uh, determines what kind of films get greenlit and which ones don't. Each week, I go over the box office charts to understand which films are on that path to profitability and which ones aren't, as well as to understand any major headlines in the movie industry that might affect those bottom lines. I help you understand industry terms like exit splits, multipliers, and per theater averages. And honestly, the story of how a film grew wings and flew at the box office or fumbled around and flopped can sometimes be more engrossing than the actual story on screen, in my opinion. Box Office Watch can be found on all major podcast stores, including iTunes, Spotify, and Google Play. Make sure you subscribe, and I hope to catch you there. And remember, our watch goes on. All right. So I think lastly, the the one that we both saw was one called Shadow Town, directed by John Aronson Gustafson and Carolina Lueca, about a Canadian woman who learns her grandmother dies, so she must travel to Iceland to sort out her affairs and sell her home until she gets embroiled in a life and death scenario involving the sale of the property. Tell me why this was your favorite film of the past, Rachel. <laughs> why it's my number one of the year. It's going to be my yes. top ten of the year. Oh, God. Do you remember when we did those lists of like the, our five best and five worst of the year so far? And I said, mm-hmm. Space Jam 2 better be the worst thing that I see. I didn't mm-hmm. know that I was going to watch this movie. I wasn't aware that this was going to be around the corner for me. Um, God, I don't like... Even just you describing it, like I have to hold in laughter because it's... The bottom line of this movie is it's incredibly boring. Like that that's and to me that's the biggest sin any movie can make is to just be boring. Like it's supposed to be a thriller. There's no thrills. There's none at all. I don't know if it was supposed to be like 
any political commentary because, I mean, we were just talking about 09 and the recession. This is based on what Iceland was going through during the recession, which was, it's actually incredibly interesting. Like, even if you don't have an interest in business or history, it's like, it, it was really fascinating what was going on in Iceland at the time because they had a boom and then they had one of the worst busts in, um, actually they, they had the worst bust in, uh, for that, for that recession across every country in the world. Um, and that's fascinating. Like that's kind of, it's a really interesting case study to look at. The real estate market was probably the biggest, I mean, that was the biggest driver for the recession in general, starting from the States. But the movie was just like, it was just boring. Like it was just, what the hell is the point of this thing? Like you take such an interesting concept, like, this boom bust that happened in Iceland and that it devastated a lot of lives, by the way, like it, it was, you know, the economic effect of that on its citizens is immeasurable. You know, it's, it's not, I, I went to Iceland a few years ago and it's like, it's not something that they like to talk about really. Um, a lot of people lost their jobs. A lot of people lost their homes. Like it, it wasn't a great time for them. And here you go, you put a, I don't even know. Is it an espionage thriller? Is it, what the hell it is and it's not even interesting like it's if you're gonna use something like this at least make it interesting and it's not and the characters are silly they make really stupid choices for example the woman without being spoilery um she gets attacked in her house and when she runs away the attacker goes hey don't run away from me and then she stops running <laughs> why would you stop running like anybody who's been attacked or if you think about being attacked and you run away and you're able to run away and then your attacker goes, stop, why would you ever stop? They make stupid decisions. The script was terrible. The actors, in my opinion, I think you and I kind of diverge a little bit on this point. I think that the actors did the best with what they could. And this isn't to say any of them were at all kind of charming or had any charisma on screen. But I just think they did the best with what they could because the script was crap. And I couldn't, I can't really expect a great performance um, from a bunch of actors who are using this script. Like you could put the, like an A-list together and give them this script. And I think that you would get probably something very similar. So yeah, that's why it's going to be my number one of the year. There you go. <laughs> I'm glad in a recent episode, I went on a big rant and you, you talked about how enjoyable <laughs> it was listening to that. I, I now need to reciprocate and, and say how much I enjoyed listening to you <sighs> rant about this film. It's so annoying, too, because I actually really like when I see Iceland um, named as like, oh, this is where the movie comes from. It makes me really excited because I go like, oh, that's really interesting. Because I feel like they have cool movies. And then it, it was so disappointing. <laughs> it was just, I was like, come on, Iceland. <laughs> like, was it the Canadian side that let it down? I don't know. But it was very, very frustrating. But what do you think about it, Dakota? Yeah, I, I, I want to echo what you said. I, I feel like your reaction is a lot stronger than mine, whereas mine was just boredom for the most part, where I just <laughs> was not interested at all. Um, it, it's it's interesting how I I feel like I had a bit more of a visceral reaction to Drunk Bus and just sort of being offended by its blandness, whereas this movie, I was just, you know, falling asleep during it. The, yeah. the, the main actress, I felt, had zero chemistry with anyone and just 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 nothing was going on in her face where she just kind of had this look in her face at all times. It was the exact same reaction to everything. And then they tried to do, and I don't want to call them quite as jump scares, but she's in this house and she doesn't know what's going on. And she clearly knows something's happening. And so it was at least three times they tried to do like a surprise jump scare where there's a noise in the house and she like turns around and wonders what's there. She opens the door and expects to see someone and then there's a picture there or something like that. And just like all three times, it was just this build up and then just nothing and build up and nothing and build up and nothing. And then finally, like on the fourth time that happens, they do this again. And then, oh my gosh, there's someone inside the house this time. And I'm just like, okay, but I no longer care. You, <laughs> you, you've tried so hard to get me so worked up every single time. Now, like the first time I let Jimmy, it was like, oh, what's, what's going on there? Who, who's stalking her? I, you know, we're seeing people following her. What's going on? How is this going to play out? And then it was just like a dud and a dud and a dud. And by the time it actually does happen, you're just like, great. Okay. So a fight is about to happen. And then she runs away and the attacker says, wait, come on. <laughs> <laughs> and she goes, okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <sighs> 
And then they have Jonathan Rhys Davies, who most people know as Gimli from the Lord of the Rings films, who like is hiding in like dark corners for like the first hour of the film. And then he shows up and gives one speech and then we don't see him again. Like literally that's all he does. And I'm just like, wow, you definitely paid a lot of money to have a, you know, a name actor show up in this film. And he probably did two days on set and that's it. It's gotta be a favor. No, like that's gotta be, he knew somebody <sighs> on the production or something. Cause it is a very I, random I just place those for things- him to be in. I, I think it's just one of those things where it's like, great, who can we afford? Great, Jonathan Reese Davies <laughs> cost two hundred thousand dollars. Great, let's let's for two days, let's do it. Let's let's book him. He's yeah, like two days. Great, yeah, I'd love to make two hundred grand for two days. Or, that's true. You know, I'm just making up figures here, but like that's just um, how I imagine they 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 worded it. Where it's like, we have this much amount for a cast. We want to have at least one person who's a recognizable international name. Who can we afford? I know Gimli <laughs> and my axe. They're watching Lord of the Rings and they're just like, I know who we should get. <laughs> this guy. Viggo Mortensen. My Wait, God. we can't afford him. Oh, Vigo, Vigo's not available. All right, let's get Gimli. Damn it. Okay, okay. Uh, <laughs> who's next on this list? Christopher <laughs> Lee. Oh, he's dead? Oh, that's awkward. Uh, who else do we got? <laughs> Orlando. Oh. Too young. Yeah. Sean <laughs> Astin's too young. Elijah Wood looks too young too. He looks like a baby. Like can't use him. <laughs> he does, even though he's in his forties. Yeah, he, but he looks the same as when he was a child. Yeah. <laughs> That's so funny. So yeah, like this was interesting because like yeah. you were talking to me afterwards and you're like, oh, this is this is one that's on my radar. I, I love this idea of 2000, mm-hmm. whatever was nine, 10 Iceland. This is such a great concept and you're so into it. And like even reading the description, the description of this movie sounds interesting. You don't exactly see too often this sort of concept of a, a thriller based around the housing market. <laughs> and then by the end, like, I don't really want to spoil this movie, but I'm going to kind of spoil this movie. So if you, if you if you really are interested in this movie, skip forward this, this next little bit. But spoiler alert, the ending is, shocker, she owns two <laughs> properties. And it's just like, what the hell? This is what the whole movie built up to be? She owns two properties? Great. <sighs> Congratulations. And like, it does nothing with that information. Nothing at all. No. Absolutely nothing. I I think it's just like the nerdy business side of me that was like, ooh, recession stuff in Iceland. That's exciting. (laughs) Like, that's so interesting. That literally was the thing that caught my eye. I was like, oh, yeah, that that sounds kind of cool. Like, I can get into that. And then I didn't really think beyond, like, why would you do a thriller about the housing market? Because that's not very thrilling. It's interesting, but it's not thrilling, I wouldn't say, even though I'm interested in it. Um, yeah, you know what, one thing you were talking about, like the jump scares, one thing I found that was really, at this point, I was completely checked out of the movie was, um, that was incredibly eye rolling for me was when they got her to take a shower. Right. And like they, she gets undressed and she takes a shower and I'm like, oh, this is when something happens because of course now you have like a naked woman in the shower. Mm -hmm. Now something needs to happen. And I'm just like, this is like the most tired and lazy writing come on you know it doesn't her vulnerability isn't like oh god she's naked my goodness like what's happening i think one reason too that you probably got really sleepy from it was because the color palette of this movie was the most gray black and blue (laughs) that i have ever seen in a movie like there was no sun like listen iceland i think they know they they have moments in the year where i think they have you know times where there's really little sun and it is a fairly gray country in many ways but like it's not that bad (laughs) like i don't think they have to make it look so crappy and bleak all the time um but maybe that's what made you sleepy because it was sleepy time in the movie like that's like the time that you should be going to bed Mm -hmm. yeah so it's tough because like this is a canadian iceland co-production they shot the beginning in toronto and I'm just like, once again, just giving Canadian films a bit of a bad name. Yeah. And it's such a, like, I know you and I, we always want Canadian films to be good. Like we really want them to be good. And you watch them and you think, yeah, but in a way it's like, it's great that we watched both of us watch wildhood after, right? Like I know I did, but I think yep. you did as well. So in a sense that was kind of good that wildhood was our last one to watch because um, in terms of a Canadian film, like we, we, can see how good it can be it doesn't always need to be like 
crap, which I do think sometimes Canadian films, but okay. I will say sometimes Canadian movies, I think sometimes aren't great, but it's usually because of the budget, not necessarily because it's a bad idea or a bad story. It's just, they don't have the same resources that Hollywood has. However, this movie, I think if you gave this script to a Hollywood studio, I think it would still be bad. So it's not really budget issue on this one. Yeah, th- this definitely completely came down to, to scripting decisions, I feel like. <sighs> just a waste of time. <laughs> it's just... I it, This was one of those that was like watching it. And because, you know, you and I both, obviously, we did um, virtual when neither of us went to Sudbury to, to watch anything in person. Um, it's one of those where you're like, you check how much longer there is in the movie. And I think yeah. I got to a point, I was like, there's still like an hour left. And I think I messaged you when that happened. I said, how is there still, like, I feel like, you know, four hours have gone by. So anytime anybody complains about like the length of a movie, I'm like, this was, I think this was a 90 minute movie. I could be wrong, but I think it was supposed to be like a tight 90. And it felt like it was going on for ages. So it's nothing to do, in my opinion, it's never about the movie length. It's just the quality of the movie because four hours can go by quickly if it's a good movie. Well, there you go. All right. So we also both watched some shorts. Uh, so if you want to highlight some of the shorts that you saw that, that you really want to talk about, please do so. Sure. Actually, I would, anybody who's done, like, I'll be a bit more positive on these ones than I am on um, Shadowtown. But I always find sometimes like at film festivals, the shorts get, I guess put to the side a little bit sometimes, but I find them really, really interesting and they're really quick, obviously to watch. Cause they're all, I, I believe a short has to be under 20 minutes. Um, I think that's kind of the rule around them, but you know, in and around that, that's what they average. So it's, it's a really nice way to watch up and coming filmmakers and really cool story ideas that might one day become a much like a feature film if, if they do well. So I saw a few, but I'm just going to highlight three of them or four of them, sorry, that I saw. So the first one's a Canadian one called The Hangman at Home. It's directed by Michelle Cranot and Yuri Cranot. It's inspired by a 1922 Carl Sandburg poem that is about what does a hangman do at home? Like, what do they talk about when they go home? Do they ask how the weather is and that kind of thing? It's an animated short. There's no dialogue in it. The poem is the, poem is the same name, by the way. The, the poem's called The Hangman at Home. Um, the poem is read over uh, the course of 14 minutes and you look inside each kind of apartment room of one building and you see the lives of different people and there's different stories. You have like an old man who comes home, um, a father playing with his daughter, a pregnant woman, uh, a young boy, you know. So I really enjoyed it. I think the animation was absolutely incredible. It kind of looked like the best I can describe it is like moving finger paintings. Um, you could see kind of the brush strokes of, I'm not an art person, so forgive my um, descriptions here. <laughs> you could see kind of like the brush strokes of the paint, you know, and it's just moving in a really, really neat way on the screen. Uh, so I really enjoyed that one. And those are two directors that hundred percent. I will, anytime I see something, if I see something new coming from them, um, especially in the animated world, I think, that is a team to look out for. And um, the other one I saw is also a Canadian one, and it's called Le Froid or The Frost. That was my French for you. So it's in French. Um, it's directed by Natalia uh, Duguay, and it's very, very short. It's about a woman whose husband has passed away. Uh, she lives in Quebec, and it's in the middle of winter, so it's super, super cold, and she's able to preserve her husband's body in their house or in their apartment rather for just a little bit longer um it's it's just a really quick and brief look at i guess the instantaneous grief and denial that you might feel when your partner like assuming because these are two elderly people so assuming that they've spent an entire lifetime together you know it's it's that idea of when your partner passes away and and what do you do Um, And for this woman, she just wasn't ready to accept that her husband was gone. And it's really interesting. It's, uh, I think this one, yeah, it's only nine minutes, this one. Um, But it's a really interesting look into grief and just kind of the devastation that that can happen, even at an old age when, you know, we kind of know that the end is near. 
uh, but it doesn't make the loss any less, I suppose. Uh, another one that I saw is called Stereotype, and this one comes from South Korea. It was directed by another team, by Nayoon Beek and Dayoon Beek. It's animated again. I think I have a real thing for animated shorts, it would appear. Um, but it is a post-war kind of... Sh- uh, it's about two groups, two villages. A war has come and gone, but the two villages still hate each other. One is blue, one is red. And it just shows... And I think especially considering that the the directors come from South Korea, there's a real obvious parallel that you can show with what's going on with South Korea and North Korea um, that you have these wars that are done by governments and yet the civilians are the ones who end up kind of hating each other for almost no reason. And, you know, realizing that in the end you're, you're the same, you know, wars are, wars are the product of a government and, you know, for people to have to suffer from it is probably the biggest tragedy of, wars in general. So that was a really interesting one that I saw that I just, I liked the parallel that you could make to reality. And when I noticed that the creators were from Korea kind of made more sense why the short was the way it was. And the last one that I'm going to mention is a series called Itchy the Camel. These were really, really short and it's, they're actually Canadian as well. And it's directed by Anders Beer and P.H. Delaire. So Itchy the Camel had a series. It's a camel who has an itchy hump. And there's a basketball one, a rakes one, and a tennis one. And he basically, the camel Itchy, is going through the desert and finds these different objects and tries to figure out a way to itch his hump. It's very silly. It's very cute. Um, The animation is beautiful. And I think that's kind of the purpose of these shorts was to show off the animation. Um, And no dialogue. And the camel doesn't talk or anything like that just enjoys, you know, finding rakes and building different contraptions out of it. So I enjoyed those ones too. Just re- they're really cute and really fun. So those are the shorts that, um, yeah, that I would like to highlight. Cause I actually really enjoyed them. I thought that the, the selection of shorts that Cinefest had this year was pretty good. Well, nice. Well, there you go. I only ended up watching one short. It was one called little rink, which was directed by Lisa Melmed. And it's, it was basically, uh, if you've ever been in bars or whatever, or someone's basement, uh, where they have like these hockey table sets where it's like little hockey players that you use control. So it's not quite like the foosball style, but sort of similar to that, but it's each individual player has its own rod that you control, but basically it follows this, uh, yearly competition to name the, uh, best player of this sort of tabletop hockey tournament. Uh, and it's just one this one year in this competition following all the different contenders for it and it's 14 minutes but it was it was fairly enjoyable and as someone who's played tabletop hockey and is not very good at it it was just sort of enjoyable to watch it and that's about it really um (laughs) i i I did like it um but yeah i didn't i didn't watch as many shorts as you did but glad to hear that you saw some that you watched that you enjoyed too i think there it's like a really easy way especially because it's a virtual festival or hybrid sorry but we were doing it virtually it's just like a really easy way of, you know, you got a few minutes, you know, 30 minutes maybe, and you're just kind of like, oh, I'd like to watch something from the festival, but you don't have enough time to watch a full film. So you just kind of look through the different shorts and it's a nice, enjoyable way to to kind of take part in a film festival. And I think too often shorts kind of, they do get pushed aside, but I, I really think that they should kind of focus in a little bit more on the shorts. You mentioned that Itchy, the camel, he won an award, right? Or not he. The camel didn't. The, yes, the, the camel himself won an award. <laughs> Best animated camel. He deserves it. He was itchy, and he found ways to not be itchy. It was very cute. Yes, Itchy the Camel Rakes did win Outstanding Animated Short, uh, along with Wildhood, which also picked up an award. Like I said, all my puny sorrows won outstanding Canadian feature and official competition got outstanding international feature. The audience choice went to the Vineland club, which was a Canadian film and the runner up being mass. So there you have the go. Uh, those are most of the, the big winners for Cinefest Sudbury. Obviously there were some other winners as well, but I'm not going to name them all. But I think that uh, that about wraps up our coverage of Cinefest. We still have some more great festival coverage coming your way in the next few weeks. But uh, Rachel, what have you been working on and where can we find you? Uh, you can find me at rachelkh.com or on social media, 
Twitter and Instagram underscore Rachel KH. In terms of what I've got going on, I have all my Cinefest reviews up, which I know Dakota will link to because you're very good at doing that. Um, otherwise, yeah, it's just still the TIFF Festival. I'm, I'm really take. I took a little bit of a break post TIFF, um, not really realizing that Cinefest was literally right after. Right yeah. yeah, I didn't actually like that. There was a bit of an overlap and I didn't kind of compute that when I was um, planning out my, my September schedule. So because of TIFF, I had to, I had to catch up on kind of real person work that sucked, but yeah, I was, I was glad to take part in Cinefest this year because I think it is, it, it is a really cool festival and it isn't as, it doesn't have the kind of the pomp and circumstance, obviously of TIFF or even of uh, Fantasia, which we covered before. Um, but it's a really, you know, it's a really cool festival that highlights um, Canadian filmmakers in particular. And actually on the weekend, I saw a friend who used to live in Sudbury and I mentioned this one to her and she was like, oh yeah, it's such a big deal in Sudbury. And she's gone a number of times when she was living over there. So uh, she was really recommending that next time it's okay to do so, to actually go to Sudbury and, and take part in the festival, which I would love to do. So hopefully next year, Hopefully next year we have a bit of a return and we can do some in-person festivals. Wow. Well, look at you. I'm glad you have an in that you'd be able to to go and, and see it, hopefully with a friend and maybe have some place to stay. But yeah, if if I was still in the province, I totally would love to because Sudbury is quite a nice little town. And it is a great festival. And, and you know, there there is something special about being able to go in person to, to see some screenings. You were lucky enough to go see some in-person screenings at TIFF. I'm going to be able to get to do some at VIF. So it's just really nice to be able to go to theaters again. Absolutely. And hopefully that won't stop anytime soon. Um, and like I said, hopefully next year, all the film festivals kind of go back to, to being in person for everything with or without a digital component. I mean, that's still up for debate whether or not that's actually going to happen. Well, I hope they still do digital components because otherwise I won't be able to cover a festival. <laughs> That's what you get for moving to BC. Okay. You made that decision. So. Well, you know what? That's fair. Yeah. Uh, you can follow the show on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at ContraZoom Pod. And if you watched anything during Cinefest, let us know what your thoughts were. Send an email to ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Thank you to Eric and Kevin Smale for the theme music and to Stephanie Pryor for the logo design. If you'd like to listen to podcasts on YouTube, we do post all episodes there as well. Thanks for checking us out. Mm-hmm.